Welcome to the Black Diplomats Podcast, where we talk about foreign affairs from a Black perspective. This week, we're focusing on the ongoing political crises in the Central Asian nation of Kazakhstan, where protests erupted over rising fuel prices and grievances against the government more than a week ago. While most of the protests were peaceful, violence did take place. As of this recording, more than 100 people have died during the protests and some 12,000 people were arrested, according to authorities. Many people say their loved ones are still missing and unaccounted for. Now, some analysts say the violence stemmed from an internal power struggle amongst the country's elites, pointing to the removal of various government and security officials, according to the New York Times. Kazakhstan's President Kasim Jomart Tokayev has referred to protesters as criminals and bandits. He also requested peacekeeping troops from the Russian-dominated Collective Treaty Security Organization to come in and help reclaim order, but they have begun withdrawing from the country. Though news media have moved on for the most part, there's still much to be discussed and that's what we're going to do today. Here to help us to contextualize everything that's happening on the ground are two experts who understand Kazakhstan incredibly well. They are Diana Kudia-Birgenova and Asel Dulat-Keldieva, both of whom devoted much of their research to Kazakhstan and political power in the region. Kudia-Birgenova is a lecturer in political sociology at the Department of Sociology, University of Cambridge. Dulat-Keldieva teaches graduate courses in political science at the OSC. Academy in Bishkek. All right, fam, let's start the show. First, th- thank you all for coming on uh, to talk about the political crisis that's going on in Kazakhstan. But before we get into any of that, I want to do a mental health check with each of you. So, um, Asa, can you please tell me how you're feeling in general about things, about yourself? Uh, in general or in connection to the events? In connection to the events. All right. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, I mean, uh, for me, it's an ongoing um, struggle uh, already for um, several several years because we experienced a similar um, phenomenon last year in Kyrgyzstan, um, and then um, added to that a couple of other uh, regional um, negative developments. So I am. Um, how to say it, emotionally down, that our small region of Central Asia is being torn uh, by such um, events and that uh, the Russian framing doesn't help that and that within the region we are even distancing further away from each other. So that cannot but negatively affect my mental health. Okay, and so I hope that you feel like you can take a some relaxation or or break away from it because I know people interview ask you for interviews and at the end of the day you're still people dealing with it and no one ever asks us how we are coping with it. Diana, how about you? 
Yeah, um, I, I don't think I had enough time to catch up with my mental health in the, in the past few days. But uh, it's definitely, like, you know, uh, a, a, like, you know, multi-layered uh, feelings of different thoughts. Uh, if you I mean, like, for us, I think, for both Estelle and me and for a lot of our, um, you know, colleagues and friends who are commenting on, on it right now, who are connected to the region, we always talked about it as, like, you know, um, our field work is, I mean, our field is our home. Um, and then that, and, and we wrote this, like, you know, uh, separate, I mean, series of essays on um, on feminist, Central Asian feminist subjectivities where we talk about these issues. So obviously for us, it's like, you know, it's a multi-layered issue of um, worrying about uh, family and friends back there, worrying about, like, you know, the situation and how it can exacerbate. But then on the other hand, we cannot make predictions. And sometimes people ask us very, you know, um, difficult questions that we, we need to have answers for nobody has I think at the moment but also these questions are a bit like you know they even send you into a more um, anxious um, space uh, but you have to react on on, on, on the spot and um, you know um, yeah I think I think there should be a little bit of consideration for that as well we just we don't just comment on it like you know as if we don't have any connection to it obviously we have very deep connection to to, to the region so I think it's very important and thank you for asking yeah, th thank you for sharing because I always do these temperature checks with people because I devote this podcast to amplifying people who are indigenous to the regions. And, and I think in the West, we tend to look at crises that take place in Ukraine, where I'm at right now, and in Kyrgyzstan as political chess. And we forget that these humans who are sacrificing their lives for their own liberation are, they're people. And they aren't some abstract game for the West to play with. And in media, we often take the tone of the government and we have this posture of objectivity and we can't feel anything and we can't talk to people like they have something to lose. And I noticed this as a reporter, as a black reporter who covers police violence and who covers uh, protests in the Black Lives Matter movement. And you have families who literally moments earlier have dealt with something extremely traumatic and you have some person with a microphone in their face telling them to sum up everything in a 30 second soundbite and you just put it out on in the media and you move on to something else and I just think that it's a very soulless approach to dealing with people so that's the reason why I'm always asking people about how they're doing so we can get into the politics of, of things and inform people, but just recognizing the people with whom I speak are impacted by this is important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I just uh, want to thank you for this because this is the first time a journalist is asking me this, really, literally. And uh, I've given a lot of commentaries and uh, interviews. Um, so, and this is really, I think, uh, also important, I think, within the shift of paradigms also in our scholarship, because in the past, uh, people, individuals were treated as just pawns um, in, in hands of elites. 
and the elites were given the, the predominant uh, attention in the scholarship about their strategies and calculations and games. So they were talking about clans and uh, all sorts of regional networks, but people, their grievances, their opinions were always uh, neglected. And uh, I think uh, with the rise of um, local scholars uh, who can speak in English um, and can actually uh, transmit those voices, it's really important to, to get to those stories and finally start recording them. So I think your approach is, uh, is great. Thank you. Of course, uh, uh, in, in any time. And so the, the thing about what's happening in Kazakhstan, the, uh, there are a lot of us, including myself, who are not familiar with this region and we're not familiar with the backstory of what happened uh, 10 days ago with these protests, I am beginning to visit Central Asia more often. In fact, I was in Kyrgyzstan in December. Just for a few days, a friend of mine recommended that I go. And while I was in Tashkent, uh, a place uh, where I go often now, I'm starting a fur export business from Tashkent and tourism, interestingly <laughs> enough. But I'm still becoming acclimated to this region, but obviously uh, each of these countries has their own history and culture. So Asil, do you mind just giving us some background on what led up to these protests that occurred 10 day, uh, uh, you know, some days ago, uh, close to two weeks ago, and they quickly turned violent. And then now you have Russian troops uh, that have entered the scene. But just give us some background on this, please. I'm not a historian, so I don't feel comfortable uh, going back to the Soviet period. Although I think it's very important because um, according to uh, um, historian colleagues of ours, um, there were already uh, popular uh, rebellions um, during the Soviet Union. And that's really important because uh, the Soviet authorities and um, well, uh, following that, also some uh, Western scholars uh, highlight that uh, the Central Asian societies are very passive and lack agency because uh, we didn't own our state, we didn't own our nation. This was a, a top-down ruling and the people in Central Asia got used to uh, their um, kind of got used to, um, to be passive in front of their um, um, state patronage, right? So I think, well, uh, uh, the historians would tell you that this was not always the case, that during the Soviet Union and pre-Soviet Union, there were uh, popular protests um, and rebellions, but we need to study them more. So who were the agency of those people and uh, whether they protested, um, their, their demands um, incorporated some democratic changes or not. Um, now, coming back to uh, the current events, um, so there are a couple of um, things that to really to stress. So when we talk about the, uh, well, so I think there are several elements that we should always keep um, in sight and not exclude them in, in favor of one dominant story. So there was, on one hand, local protests, uh, which were spread across the country and voiced different demands. 
There was also a popular uprising. I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't shy away from this term. It was indeed popular and it was an uprising against the regime. And a third, uh, there was a power uh, relations, uh, top-down power relations, uh, the elites who might have used um, crimin uh, criminal networks to um, basically um, hijack uh, the peaceful protest. So th these are the three elements that we have to keep in mind. Now, some people might kind of be surprised. So how come in such a um, economically prosperous country, um, in, a, in a country uh, which uh, had most of the welfare programs, because other Central Asian states are much poorer and couldn't really provide for welfare, Kazakhstan stands really at a strike uh, contrast to that. So how come in such a country, um, which also suppressed a lot of dissidents, uh, such a major, massive uprising could have happened? Well, uh, the existing scholarship um, can actually tell you that grievances and protests existed already before. So my own comparative research with uh, my colleague Medet Tuligenov from American University shows that um, uh, the protests got really in spike in Kazakhstan as of 2008. So more than a decade ago. So this is kind of uh, the, uh, um, the presence of a political uh, culture, uh, a highly politicized um, uh, people is some, nothing new to Kazakhstan. So we should not really undermine their political culture in Kazakhstan because there are a lot of commentators, especially in Russia, who are saying currently that, oh, there is no civil society in Kazakhstan. Civil society is underdeveloped and therefore they're able only for rioting and violence. We have to stop with this kind of really nonsense. Uh, there were protests and there were politicized people and people expressed their grievances for now several decades, right? Um, and also uh, uh, these protests were structured and they were peaceful in many places. So there is an, um, a local collectivities who could provide for these peaceful actions. What now happened in Almaty and Southern Kazakhstan where violence suddenly was added to the peaceful protest is something that uh, we scholars and journalists must investigate in the coming days, weeks and months. And there's a huge work um, lying ahead of us to really understand how come the ordinary citizens were enmeshed, uh, got enmeshed with uh, some um, strange um, uh, violence that for the moment is, uh, um, I think it can be, well, it's explained right now only as elite power game and uh, criminal networks. Yeah, definitely. So, so Diana, I definitely um, would like to hear what you think about this power dynamic uh, that's taking place um, between Kazakhstan and, and Russia, given your own research, because you're right, there, there are a lot of people who are not giving uh, Kazakh civil society its own individual agency and even in the West I think that we could do a better job of of, of talking about that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes um, thank you and and I, I I agree with the and I think her voice is so important because she's been doing the you know the study of contentious politics on the ground when um, you know for, for such a long time in the region and when the last Kyrgyz revolution happened she was one of the few people who actually were on the street documenting it so well and I think that's that's the the type of thing that are crucial because a lot of commentators, um, you know, and and again, I don't want to you know criticize anybody, but I think it's very very important for us to document it 
and uh, and I said actually inspired um, part of my forthcoming work on civil society. Well, we don't call them civil society. I, I actually couldn't find the right language to to call it, but in the end, I said it's the political field that is forming outside the regime and is forming these protest movements that happened basically after President Nazarbayev resigned. And I and I knew completely that I'm only taking like you know a specific part of history. But that's so important to, to highlight it because like you know we shouldn't say that just because some people don't know about it it doesn't exist and i want to thank ourselves because actually uh because we are you know we, we're long-term friends and we constantly talk about these things but um she inspired me long before the event happened i, I was working on it um recently and i hope it's going to come out soon it, it is about uh the protest movement that happened uh, since 2019 they were known as Khazak Koktema, um, but I don't want to speculate right now, and I don't want people to like you know, take it the wrong way. But it's translated as the spring. Uh, they wanted to do it as a as a um, Prague Spring. It was about gradual changes and so on and so forth. But um, yes, and 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 I completely agree with her that we shouldn't underestimate and undermine that these, these these movements are there, and they definitely were there when when the peaceful protests happened because they were the ones who were calling for solidarity with the. Uh, Western Kazakhstan protests. So I think it's very crucially important. But again, that's something that is just going to come out and and hopefully will uh, contribute to sort of like, you know, um, some more knowledge. But uh, in terms of elite things, I think um, it's not only Kazakhstan, it's in general this, this particular region that uh, is definitely understood through, through elite um, struggles. I completely agree with it. Um, and, um, and for a very long time, and, and and still, I'm, I'm, I believe that, that one of the best things to, to understand what's going on in, in, in Kazakhstan and in other Central Asian states is through understanding the regime. But as I said correctly, put it, we shouldn't like, you know, put all our eggs just into one basket. We, should need, we need to kind of like contextualize and see the complexity of the situation on the ground. And Kazakh protests completely demonstrated this complexity. I even had, um, when I was writing before, again, all of this, you know, events completely shook us out of balance a bit. But uh, we've been writing about these things before, and I was really criticizing the approach where uh, citizens are taken as obedient masses uh, because they, you know, don't protest in, in exactly in the scale of, of, of protests that we've seen in Kazakhstan now. But it doesn't mean that the citizens completely agree with, with what was going on. Um, and I think um, there is, so basically two things really quickly. There is a power struggle. Uh, it is evident, but it's not full story. And we shouldn't, like, you know, just, it as black and white just see it as only the the, the regime or uh, the struggle is, is the most important we actually need to see it how it, the regime and the regime struggle then transforms to the to the streets and uh, the second thing that i want to say is that we are receiving eyewitnesses reports now thankfully either those people who did video diaries or those people who did write during the events when they were on the streets who had the you know the the capacity and enough forces to actually sit down and document these things i'm really thankful to a lot of people on the ground for that. And we're seeing how the protest in Almaty, for example, was completely diverse. There were all sorts of groups on the ground. There were very much patriotic people believing and, and, and celebrating the victory that they built in the new country. There were flags, they were very happy, and they were very much anti-Nazarbayev. There were people who were angry in general for the situation, that they're poor, they did want to attack certain you know, places like residency, uh, president's residency in Almaty, like administration, administrative buildings. There were a lot of violent groups that were highly organized and they had their own reasons. There were random looters, absolutely random. Um, there were organized looters. There were all sorts of people on the ground. And I, I completely agree with us. But you know, if, if we put the criminal part aside now, we can put the violent part aside. If we're looking just in general, what were the grievances of 
ordinary people who were on the streets is that they were highly, highly anti-regime. And like, you know, um, I think this is also part of the power struggle. If people are anti-regime, it means they're also part of the power struggle. Not in the sense that they support what the people call and what we don't like, like, you know, clans. They're no longer clans. They're like, you know, the, the group of groups of interest. Uh, but they didn't definitely like, you know, were not sort of paid by that person or that political figure or, or the other. Let's not simplify these things. A lot of these people had their own subjectivity uh, of their own perception and they were on the streets because they in general against the rules of the game that are on the ground right now. So I think that's very, very important not to simply put it into Tokayev versus Nazarbayev or whoever else. It, it's a lot more complex than that. And we need to give people the, the agency. Right. I, it, that's something that I thought about as well. And when I heard these narratives of violence and people looting, it reminded me of the media coverage of Black Lives Matter protests and how media zeroed in on people who were looting and people who were violent when, in fact, the vast majority of the people who took to the streets for whatever reason were peaceful and it stereotypes people. And what I see in Kazakhstan is this same stereotyping um, of people. It's the exact same thing. And so it's a model that is used when you are covering a group of people who are fighting for their rights and particularly people who quite frankly, many people in media don't understand and don't take the time to understand. And so as opposed to getting into the we's are trying to have a nuanced conversation. They focus on the mindset. Well, if it leads, it bleeds. And I think it does a disservice to really understanding what's going on. Now, while we're on that subject, can you, um, either of you tell me more, maybe a cell, you can help me with this to understand the political opposition, uh, in Kazakhstan, what does it look like? Cause I don't know. And I'm sure a lot of us who are listening don't know either. Uh, Diana probably would agree with me if I would say that the, there is uh, no formal opposition. There are mm -hmm. uh, several um, unregistered uh, political groups, uh, unregistered political parties who claim themselves as opposition. Uh, there are also parties who claim themselves as opposition, but they are incorporated into the elite uh, framework. So they are kind of fake opposition. And um, uh, we had in Kazakhstan a major um, uh, clash, a major crisis, government versus opposition in 2005 and 2006, when uh, some of their uh, prominent members of opposition uh, were assassinated. And uh, some uh, escaped from that and uh, now found um, a refugee in, uh, in Europe. Um, so um, the authoritarian regime works in such a way that, um, especially hard authoritarian regimes, um, um, the one in Kazakhstan, um, they, they work in such a way that they suppress any alternative, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so there is this repressive environment, um, such as um, very restrictive laws uh, that uh, do not allow to register political parties, that um, basically make any uh, public collective action, such as demonstration, very difficult. And they also work against the trade unions. Basically, any formal political organization is um, has really struggles to uh, maintain its public uh, face in, in Kazakhstan. 
So that's why we also um, uh, have this um, kind of, you know, um, uh, a complex uh, picture in, in an Almaty um, protest um, last week when uh, some of these political groups were present uh, among the ordinary citizens, as uh, Diana just highlighted. Um, and some of them even tried to take on the public uh, roles to lead the crowd, but we uh, saw that they were unsuccessful. And this is really a challenge for authoritarian regimes, uh, to, uh, for uh, opposition people, leaders, um, to sustain any opposition um, in uh, Kazakhstan um, and to gain uh, public support also for that. They are discredited. Uh, there is a, a really um, kind of this regime um, machine on discrediting opposition and activists. Um, so it's uh, very difficult uh, to form, basically, alternative forces. Diana. I want to go on to something else in regards to the Kremlin's influence in Kazakhstan, because I understand that there are a wide range of, of reasons why Kazakhstan obviously would need to have strong relations with Russia, primarily because of geo, geopolitics, you know, sharing of borders, et cetera. But explain to us what is Kazakhstan's political relationship with Russia? I think the answer to, to all of your questions and, and to anybody's questions about Kazakhstan right now would be that it's very complex. And so it's, it, it is its relation uh, with Russia. I would try here to, you know, historicize a lot of it because I did uh, do a lot of archival work on, if we, if we can call it the, the post-Soviet period, if it is archival, I definitely did a lot of that. Um, and since 1986, because for me, it's, it's the crucial period in history. And I remember in the archives how much, um, particularly presidential archive, I really enjoyed uh, President Nazarbayev's own meetings with his committees, with, uh, you know, um, sort of all sorts of power institutions, if you want to call it like that, uh, in the 90s, and how much uh, connection there was to Russia. Again, I'm not somebody who just wants to talk, you know, out of the blue. I'm a researcher, so I, I prefer to, you know, cite certain things. And in these, um, in these archival uh, documents, what, what's very interesting is that, of course, there was economic dependency in the beginning, especially on ruble. And I was really uh, interested in reading how they were shocked when they were uh, thrown out of the ruble zone in 1993, and they had to, like, you know, uh, act on their feet really quickly in order to create the local currency. Um, there is definitely a lot of connection in, in general in the political sphere. And we, I mean, I think, of, co of course, my colleagues in international relations would, would like, you know, correct me and, and define it differently. But I'm the one who always looks for like, you know, this uh, complicated things. And I think it's, it's a lot more deeper than just foreign policy. We need to find a new concept for that. It's sort of like, what's the relation between Kazakhstan and, and, um, and Russia? And, and a lot of this relationship is definitely done on the hi highest level um, sort of institutions through presidents through parliaments, through um, especially ambassadors and, and the, you know, um, diplomats basically, it's very, very important. Moscow, Astana, da, da, da. But also on the other hand, it's it's about Eurasian Economic Union. Again, President Nazarbayev was the first one who proposed it in the 24th March, 1994. But actually the first re reference to Eurasian Economic Union was in his speeches locally in Kazakhstan in 1993. But um, the official proposal date is in 1994, as I said, 24th March in Moscow State University, in Moscow itself. Um, and he's been harboring and sort of building this architecture of potential economic union. And for him, it was always about 
like, you know, just economic ties. It was not about returning to the Soviet Union. He was very clear on understanding that, that he's not going to give up the sovereignty of Kazakhstan. He wants to remain an independent political um, state and so on. So that's, I think, is very, very important. And when you look into that um, historical complex through the archives, it, it, it kind of like, you know, really opens up to you that uh, for Nazarbayev, it was always about the economic relations. Um, and then obviously, I think another thing that, that needs to be played into, into here in terms of like people's connections and so on, uh, we are very different from Ukraine in the sense of um, sociolinguistic and socio-ethnic approach. So that I think is very, very important to note is that uh, we do have a, a, a large Russian, ethnic Russian population, but then we also, we are highly Russian speaking country. We do have, uh, and we don't have this, like, you know, when I was writing my um, my dissertation in my second book about the, the issue of uh, Russians, I didn't know how to separate this Russian speaking because like half of my country is Russian speaking, if not more. At least like, you know, uh, the Russian proficiency is very high in Kazakhstan. So we don't have this like Russian speaking minority. So we don't know how to like, you know, decipher our people, but we definitely have a quarter of, or even more of uh, ethnic Russians. So that's also very important. Um, and they write are not infringed. Uh, a lot of people live, it's true on the on the ground in, in context, there is a lot of solidarity um, in like, you know, towards all sort of, it's a multi-ethnic country. Um, so let's not like, you know, make that into into certain scenarios and so on, because it's not, it's not, you know, uh, what, what some people want to uh, talk about in terms of Northern Kazakhstan and so on and so forth. There are a lot of great pieces by Marlene Maruel, for example, who defines that, that, that argument and people really need to look into, into the academic discussion before jumping into conclusions. And last point that I think I need to highlight, and a lot of people are highlighting lately is our dependency on Russian media. Because even before the process, even before the internet was, was shut down, of course, the internet is a huge source of information in Kazakhstan. People don't trust a lot of official channels and so on. And the internet, they do trust, uh, especially the networks like WhatsApp, chats, Telegram channels and so on and so forth. They really trust. Uh, there's a high trust of uh, in, in, in internet. And uh, and I say that through my ethnography because it's not, you know, we don't have the, the surveys yet. And uh, the dependency on Russian media and propaganda is, is definitely vast. Again, somebody like Marlene Laruel has a whole special issue on, on media in Kazakhstan and, and she tackles on um, the, the, the Russian media dependency there. But I think it's, it's something we, sh we should, apart from all these like, you know, political foreign policy, important sort of like uh, CSTO that I want to constantly want to go on the um, issues are very important, but don't forget again, don't forget about the people, don't forget about internal networks on the ground and media I think is another key player there. Absolutely. So there are a couple of things for people who are listening that I want to clarify. Um, Nursultan Nazarbayev, who you mentioned, he is the first president of, of of Kazakhstan, and he stepped down in 2019 and taking over for him is Kasim Tokayev. Just wanted to clarify that for people in case they didn't know. Kasim Jomat. Kasim. Kasim Jomat. Yeah, excuse me. Kasim Jomat. Yeah, Tokabayev. Yes, thank you for, for that correction. I appreciate that. Um, and so, and also you brought up the dynamic with Ukraine, where I currently am. And yes, you, it's definitely um, people have been drawing these comparisons. And one of the reasons why people have done so is because of the Russian troops that are that, that were deployed to Kazakhstan under the guise of maintaining peace. But technically, they were under the Collective Security Treaty Organization. And they basically, it's basically a Russian-dominated uh, 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 military org. But the thing is, is that 
people do wonder, is there a legitimate fear, uh, Asil, that Putin may fear some type of uprising from the people where they will one day um, throw out the, the, the ruling elite and become, and I know that this sounds very generalized, but we have to start from somewhere, that they will become a... Uh, a, a, a country like Ukraine that is shifting towards aggressively towards NATO and towards the West. Uh, so I just wanted to ask your thoughts about about that concern. Well, um, like Diana, I would like to avoid such a simplistic comparisons, but um, I think um, some of my uh, colleagues in Kazakhstan. Um, um, I think they uh, flirted uh, with such fears um, uh, just recently. Um, I was in Kazakhstan uh, um, a couple of months ago and um, uh, had uh, uh, talks with a lot of colleagues working in different universities and um, trying to simply figure out what they think of the ongoing situation. Um, and uh, a lot of colleagues uh, really um, kind of, um, well, they, they were, let's put it this way, they were following uh, the Ukrainian events and specifically the Crimean annexation and um, um, being afraid, fearing that um, some of such scenario could be applied to Kazakhstan as well. And I think their fears um, um, were triggered uh, by the notorious uh, speeches of some of the Russian politicians made public. Um, and uh, such speech speeches uh, became uh, more frequent last year. And um, a lot of, of my colleagues uh, feared that this is uh, not some kind of mundane event, that this is a preparation for something. And that the more the West exerts pressure on Russia, the more Russia has to prepare some sort of a backup option. And the only backup option Russia would have is um, uh, the region of uh, Eurasia, basically the post-communist space, right? And um, otherwise, um, in, in their view, how, would, how, would, how to explain this um, imperialistic um, claims of uh, coming from some of the Russian politicians about uh, that the north of Kazakhstan is historically a Russian territory and so on and so forth, right? So this are very dangerous claims uh, to, to do um, that cannot but basically fuel fears inside uh, Kazakhstan. And this um, was palpable not only among the expert uh, circles, those who make the public opinion, uh, but also uh, by ordinary people. I've met also with um, um, uh, ethnic minorities in Karaganda, in Astana, in Almaty, um, and um, uh, they were saying that they are afraid that if something happens to uh, Tokayev's regime, uh, the most most likely this is going to affect uh, their interethnic, um, you know, um, balance that is existing right now in Kazakhstan. And of course, this is not kind of. We have to understand that um, uh, there is a whole discourse that shapes uh, people's um, uh, opinions and perceptions, and so on and so forth. And I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, right now a lot of people of um, ethnic minority background are probably. Um, have right now experiencing some anxiety back in Kazakhstan, right?
Uh, well, um, uh, um, the Kazakh uh, president always um, praised that Kazakhstan is a multi-ethnic uh, nation, having more than 80, if I'm not mistaken, Diana, you would correct me, um, 80 different nationalities living on, on the um, uh, Kazakh territory. More than, more than that, the well, president said 134, yeah. Oh, even that, okay. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, right, um, and... Um, so um, on one hand, um, of course, uh, this um, ethnic diversity um, is something that Kazakhstanis are proud of, um, and it's a, a legacy, historical legacy. But on the other hand, um, a lot of ethnic minorities would um, complain that uh, their, you know, the Kazakhization process, meaning that, um, that the major um, economic and political positions inside the government, inside the economic sectors, would be uh, distributed to the Kazakh um, ethnic um, eth ethnicity, and that the um, uh, Russian um, or other minorities would be excluded from this uh, process of distribution of um, benefits within the society. Um, so that was the, some of the grievances and uh, claims and um, Kind of concerns that us um, ethnic minorities would um, um, would experience or would at, at least voice. But I also know that um, you know uh, when I had interviews with uh, ethnic minorities, this was not as black and white. A lot of young people of uh, different backgrounds, U Ukrainian, Russian, uh, Polish backgrounds, would tell that uh, basically a lot depends on your uh, personal effort. If you get a good education, if you uh, try to work hard, basically you can uh, achieve a, a lot of um, success also in, um, in your life. So it's a very complex situation and uh, um, kind of, I don't want now to buy in into those fears about um, possible Russian scenario akin to the Ukrainian, uh, but I also think that we should not discard fully uh, some of the grievances and not grievances, but let's put a kind of um, perceptions and uh, fears uh, that uh, maybe um, ethnic minorities are currently experiencing or feeling this way. I think it's it's very important that that I completely agree with the sense that ethnic minorities do feel uh, certain uncertainty. Uh, there are like you know issues um, on on the ground, but I think also it's very important what she said about like you know about Tokayev's regime. The same thing they were saying about Nazarbayev's regime, and I would see it in uh, because Nazarbayev's regime for thirty years basically was saying like you know uh, I am the guarantor of eth uh, ethnic stability in the country, uh, ethnic uh, relations basically, and um, keep me in place. I'm just translating for what he was saying in like you know as a simple language. Um, keep me in in place as a strong president, and I will make sure that like you know socio-ethnic um, like conditions are, are going to be in balance and everybody's going to get what what, uh, what they want and then we'll, we'll live in prosperous Kazakhstan. But I think a lot of these promises we've seen, um, just like, you know, people just not believe in them and so on and so forth. But I also think that, that like, you know, we we for, for 30 years of, of independence kind of like got used to living and almost relying on, on certain state uh, paradigm but it's not a state paradigm, it's the regime paradigm that a lot of people kind of like forget that the state is separate from this regime. Um, and we need to also remember that. And also that it's in people's hands to change that situation. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to propagate and saying like, you know, there are not problems, there are issues on the ground. There are definitely issues about the access and so on. But um, I think it's also, um, you know, we, we shouldn't, again, um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like, you know, make this into, into Crimea 2.0 because Crimea was very, very different in, in context. And uh, we also knew about the complexity on the ground. And I think what, what I'm very worried because I did study Crimea in the past is that um, 
the coverage we gave to Crimea, unfortunately, externally, not we, but, but people I wasn't covering back then, uh, was that, you know, okay, people wanted the annexation. I don't want this to happen in Kazakhstan because it's a lot more complex on the ground uh, and not everybody, I mean, nobody wants the country to break up right now. So that's very, very important. Neither the minorities nor the majorities, whatever we call them, uh, everybody, all the voices of discontent that were coming in from ordinary folk on, online was like, you know, stop this violence, stop this, like, you know, um, down with this crap because we don't want the country to break up. Everybody's really, really solid uh, in solidarity for Kazakhstan to sustain its uh, borders, first of all, and to sustain its sovereignty, which I think is very, very important. And people say that regardless of their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to add one more element to even further complicate uh, the picture is that, <laughs> Because we don't want to simplify things, right? Um, so another thing to be really cautious about this um, ethnic dimension is that actually when we say that, uh, well, there are these grievances that uh, some um, ethnic minorities have um, limited access to uh, their kind of fair distribution of benefits within society, well, this is not really ethnic. This is really also class-based because there are simply uh, this, uh, like a really uh, a big cluster of population which belongs to the uh, working class, the poor class people who have the same, uh, who struggle in the same way to get access to education, mm -hmm. healthcare, um, and um, other public goods. So this is, I think, cross-ethnic uh, thing. It's, um, I think it's about really uh, their um, kind of their fair distribution of their wealth within society, which is not being possible because, uh, because of regime uh, capture of um, resources. Right, that seems to be a theme when I, um... You know, there are a wide range of revolutions and, and public protests that take place across this space that we knew as the former Soviet Union, um, be it in Georgia, you know, across all, all of the, uh, the the former republics that comprised of it. Um, when, when I'm listening to the both of you speak, we can talk about the power dynamic between the Kremlin and Kazakhstan, what have you, but at the core of it, people went to the street because they feel like, like you said, their, their basic needs are not being met. Um, they see the inequity um, that is taking place in their societies. And what we're seeing is, are, are, are people who are making, who, who are making, who, who are making their voices clear about um, what was happening to them. I would like to ask you, uh, Diana, and, and also you can jump into this. What is the current mood of people there now because we've we've heard we've heard that there were internet outages do they come and go and we just want to like what's the current atmosphere right now well a very very uh i'm trying to find another word uh very rich uh very differentiated we need to remember that again as i said uh, this is the country that is white, I mean, uses the mobile internet, is dependent on the mobile internet, um, more than uh, 11 million. So basically, the most part of the adult population is connected and is actively using social media. That's the main, I mean, one of the main sources of the information, uh, getting it through all sorts of, you know, chats and so on. So, so it's very, very important when they were cut off. First of all, they were in shock. I'm speaking to my friends, to my colleagues, uh, to my family. Um, and, and they just like, you know, they just now kind of like coming out of this post-traumatic experience, which is of course multidimensional, but, but one of the post-traumatic experiences is about not having 
got access to the internet. And I did translate on my Twitter one of the uh, e electronic essays from from one of the activists who basically said, "Isn't that a a, a, a simple right for people? I mean, like simple." Um, access to, to internet is something that is inevitably a human right and we will cut off from it. So it's like, you know, it's a very traumatic experience for them, apart from all the violence, anxiety and, and so on that they, um, they experience. And I think that crucial moment of being only connected to the state media that I know a lot of people had completely lost trust uh, in, in state media for a very long time. Certain people were saying like, uh, I haven't seen state channel in, in, in a decade. And all of a sudden they, they were confronted and they, that was the only way they could they could find out what was going on in the country so obviously people were like you know uh dependent on that and i'm hearing accounts of people saying i would never watch state television again because i had enough it was horrible but i'm also hearing accounts of other people that completely bought into the narrative because i think it was a very crucial moment when everything else was shut down it was a you know window of opportunity for the regime to feed the type of narrative they wanted people to hear within the country. And I think that's very, very clear. But we're talking about all the geopolitical aspects and so on and so forth. We're also missing the fact that it's a very much also an internal issue and the regime was approaching it internally as well, that they wanted to, you know, for, for people to buy off their narrative. Uh, that's why like, you know, even though the blockage of internet was very, very expensive, almost 200 million dollars uh, spent on, on, on blocking the internet in these days in Kazakhstan. Nevertheless, they decided to do that. And um, of course, certain messages that the state television was sending, that the regime was sending, did find the fertile ground. Again, remember the context, people were very scared. There was a lot of confusion, especially for the dwellers of Almaty. They heard the explosions from all sides of the city at the, at the, at the time. It was not just in the, in the city center. They heard it everywhere. Um, they felt it was the war that, that started. They did not know who were who were fighting on the ground. They were very scared that, that maybe some of these uh, armed people would come into their uh, houses, into their apartment buildings. There were a lot of sort of like, you know, mis mis misinformation about all sorts of violence going on on the ground. So of course it created a sense of, um, you know, people are very angry. People are angry in general with those who started violence, but because we don't have enough information, people started, some certain groups of people started blaming all protesters, all of the people who were on the streets and started calling them all terrorists, which is again, not like, you know, let's not jump into conclusions of black and white. There were a lot of peaceful protests, protesters at the same time as there were violent groups. It was very chaotic on the ground. A lot of peaceful protesters died from the violence and we still need to find out the, the, the number of casualties in this, in this story should be heard as well. Um, there were a lot of like, you know, um, again, miscommunication on the ground. So what I'm hearing right now is that there are people who are trying to uh, get like you know the balanced out information, but they still lack information because again we don't have independent investigations into what happened, into who were the groups. People in Kazakhstan themselves are even more confused because they don't know who were the organized groups. They've been told that they were trained by the uh, security forces for years. They've been told that they foreign fighters, but foreign from where? There is this horrible story uh, about the Kyrgyz uh, jazz player who got detained. Uh, beaten up and then on the camera he said that, that he came and he got paid in order to take part in, in, in these like fightings and so on and so forth. But then he was finally released because thankfully the Kyrgyz uh, citizens on social media fought for him. So that's like, you know, um, and, and, and then Kazakh, some of my Kazakh friends who heard about it, they said this is like, this is horrendous. But at the time when you don't have access to alternative information, you tend to believe 
what the TV tells you, especially if you've been brainwashed for several days just watching it. And I think that's where, where the complexity arises. Certain people, and I've seen that even like, you know, very liberal people are very much uh, supporting President Tokayev. They think, yes, he's bringing the order. This is great. Whatever works, works. We need to establish the order. We need to save the country. And they, I mean, we must understand them as well. We shouldn't criticize them right now because they are scary. They want the, you know, uh, the stability and so on and so forth. Then there are these people, still political activists, as, as I said, said, who cannot register and their voices are heard and they're saying, uh, latest presidential speech had nothing to uh, said about human rights, about further political reforms that, they, that they're craving for, didn't say anything on amendments to, to the specific laws that are completely authoritarian and that need to be changed and so on and so forth. They've been critical. And then there are people who are simply saying like, okay, we want the truth. What happened? What, who are the yeah. casualties? Give us the numbers. So I think mm -hmm. I'm trying to simplify generalize into three groups, but I think there are a lot more. People are very much divided. We, we still need time and we very, very much need uh, independent, transparent investigation into everything that happened so that people yeah. have sources to different, you know, uh, information sources. Yeah, <clears throat> totally agree. Just maybe um, a couple of things to add. I think really the situation um, with the, um, the internet access and with uh, simply um, uh, meaning making a little bit also differs especially. So uh, Almaty and the south of Kazakhstan was hit the worst and a lot of uh, friends, um, former students and colleagues were really kind of came back to, to life, so to speak, only a few days uh, later after everything was done, right? But this was not the case in Astana. Um, so people were cut off from internet, but still had uh, kind of a limited access to like a couple of a couple of hours per day. Um, and then very interestingly, um, in, a, in the smaller cities um, in the West Kazakhstan, um, when I was speaking to my um, uh, informants, um, what was interesting that they, as if they are a little bit used to um, this protest culture, which is, I think, uh, much more uh, present in Western Kazakhstan due to their uh, actually quite regular uh, professional sectorial protest by uh, mm -hmm. workers, right? So some mm -hmm. respondents that just, just mentioned to me, ah, oh, yeah, we had this uh, uh, gathering uh, by oil workers. They demanded uh, kind of similar demands as in the last year. Then they kind of, uh, everything uh, kind of stopped and then we are at home and all, all good. Yeah, so um, there is this kind of different perceptions whether protest is a normal thing. So in in some of the uh, cities in Western Kazakhstan, uh, protests are seen as a normal part of uh, people's life uh, where you can voice your concern. Um, in other parts like Astana, which is kind of symbolically the seat of the power, um, uh, which remains uh, stable. Although, despite the fact that Astana, like Almaty, shares uh, a lot of um, socioeconomic features, there are also suburbs, there are also poor villages there around Astana, and there is also internal labor migrants. But that combination of factors did not lead to the presence of protests in Astana. Right, and uh, people um, uh, were scared, but also like what Diana said, there is right now uh, like this major split within society about how to make sense of this event, and a lot of people are angry 
angry with uh, the, the government, um, angry with the fact that government is lying to them, is not informing them, and uh, basically that uh, government chose to repress uh, the protesters. And now there's a um, big question is like, what's going to be with those 10,000 protesters who were arrested, right? And then there is another um, part of the society, which I think um, is, a, I think, a successful result of Nazarbayev's so-called social contract uh, politics, in which Nazarbayev uh, pursued this project of modernization uh, when he wanted to create this uh, major um, uh, middle class population with a uh, consumerist power. And those people really don't understand the poor people and why those uh, poor people would protest. They don't want to admit there that there is poverty, that there are social inequalities in the country, and those inequalities were rising in the past years. Uh, there is this really reluctance to admit that kind of problem, and therefore uh, there is a tendency from them to right now dismiss this uh, pro protest by their uh, precariat, by the proletarian people, uh, by simply uh, labeling them as um, inadequate, uncivilized, they backward people, they're whatever, the Afghans, the Kyrgyz, whatever comes as a, you know, as a synonym to that, to the backwardness and lack of uh, civility. And um, I'm, I think this, uh, this competing narratives will continue clashing over what has happened in Kazakhstan. And uh, uh, this unfortunately gonna also seal uh, the collective memories of the event. And that will also impact in the future how people will uh, take uh, the protest if they will uh, come in the future. So yeah, I wanted to end this with your, your vision of how we, of what, will happen from here and how do you feel these current uh this current situation is going to impact the future um of of the people um and of the current um political state uh you both have devoted your time here to 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 this work and i'm just curious about what you think is going to what going to happen next a lot of people inside Kazakhstan really liked uh, what now Takayev uh, came up um, as promising, um, like socioeconomic reforms, uh, reforms inside the um, uh, special security forces, uh, even reforms touching the trade and uh, relations um, with um, uh, Chinese uh, trade on the borders. Um, and that uh, there, there is also reshufflement in the government. And that he also promised that um, those elites that got rich uh, during the Nazarbayev, uh, they would have to share with society. Um, we don't know how that would look like and what that exactly means, um, whether this now is a really going to be a radical shift towards um, uh, more social e e equality or not, uh, that remains to be seen. But I think uh, these kind of uh, promises have appeased a lot of people inside uh, Kazakhstan, but not everybody, because a lot of other people really want a radical change, not some sort of cosmetic, you know, promises, but really uh, they wanted a full-fledged change. That out of with Nazarbayev is one thing, but that 
the regime uh, becomes um, more um, open and democratic, allowing, for example, uh, political parties, plurality, uh, kind of honest elections, um, and so on and so forth. So, um, so that this, there is this other uh, part of the population which remained highly unsatisfied and further angry with uh, how Takayev now presented the issue. Um, so there are other experts um, who would also said, uh, say that uh, this is going to tighten the authoritarian uh, regime in Kazakhstan uh, because Tokayev would need to now consolidate his power. He was weakened by whatever uh, intra-elite uh, struggle that took place there. He has to now consolidate his power and uh, that would mean that he would need to silence the opponents, uh, even further curtail their activists and independent media. Um, so this uh, draws rather pessimistic uh, picture, uh, but um, and uh, I I think it's all valid and legitimate uh, you know uh, analysis. But um, since I'm coming also from Kyrgyzstan, where we have experienced three, not just one, but three uh, popular crisis and uh, all sorts of protests, um, I think uh, what for me what is really important is that. Um, okay, uh, a regime might do whatever it might uh, want to do to even further grab, uh, grab power, but society, society and individuals will not be the same anymore. You know, this, uh, the bloodshed, uh, their simply experience of rising against autocracy, their experience of successful storming of um, the symbolic power seats, their experience of being together with other sisters and brothers to be in the same uh, problem, to be on the street and not being afraid of that, that I think gonna shape uh, memories for long-term. And I think this is also gonna uh, um, shape the dynamics of protests if they will be in the future. Because a lot of protesters really remember Janauzin, right? Uh, they also remembered uh, other uh, past events, Alash, uh, there were some signs of that written on the walls. So this is the memory is important, and that gives me a little bit of hope. Okay, Diana, brief you mind. Okay, uh, I think no, I'm actually I think a lot of people think I'm, I'm I'm too optimistic. Of course, I don't like predictions, and I don't usually make predictions. But um, it, it's very hard when when you are living through through these you know events, and it's it's your own country, it's your own society. So I want to be hopeful, um, and. What we're seeing now, and I agree with this on, on, on several points, I think especially, uh, let me let me just approach like, you know, one by one. I think uh, what regime is doing now is they're trying to dissect uh, the process because again, they were not homogeneous. So, so the regime really much understands it and they're trying to dissect it and give each group what they kind of like ask for. We see how far this will go in actions because people don't no longer just believe words. They want to see how it's going to pan out in their everyday life, whether they're going to start living better, whether like, you know, um, all of their grievances and claims at least are going to change a bit. And the regime has been very useful in sort of like, you know, buying off the protesters in the past like that by giving them a sort of social welfare or a short term, you know, like uh, financial gains for, for what they wanted, especially when I'm talking about those people who claimed um, um, socioeconomic grievances. We'll see how it's going to work out. Everybody is also expecting, not everybody, but a lot of people are uh, expecting what's going to happen to the parliament that uh, completely demonstrated that we don't have a parliament and all these you know, events that, that were happening, our MPs were completely absent, completely silent, almost as if they were waiting for, uh, you know, for, for who's going to win. And it was really, really clear that we don't have a working parliament. And I don't think we had it for a very long time, let's be honest. 
Um, and I wrote about it in my, in, in my books that, you know, in my papers that it's not a viable institution as it is right now. So it needs to be properly reelected. There shouldn't be just pro-regime parties in there who constantly repeat the same things. The MPs who've been there for 20 years uh, not saying anything new and so on for people. And that was one of the claims of the people of the protesters in Western Kazakhstan. They no longer want to see these same faces in the government, these same faces in, in the institutions and definitely in the parliament. And they want to have people um, elected who are accountable to them on the state level, but also on the regional level with the Akims or local governors. They want these people to be properly elected and elections to be open. I think that claim for a number of protesters uh, who completely understood that the political is deeply connected to the economic and deeply connected to the everyday life that, that, that you know, the politicians have to be accountable to them. That claim is not going to go anywhere, even if, like, you know, the prices will go down, um, the salaries will go up and so on and so forth. People are very much aware that in the longer run, they need to have accountable, like, you know, they need to have the voice in the political system. So, um, and that claim and that process should be, you know, very hard to shut down now precisely because of what I said, said there are two things. People finally saw that uh, they have the power and that's not going to go away in anywhere in the longer run because the type of euphoria, the type of happiness and celebration of victory that were that was there on the streets with the flags, with, with singing the anthem, with openly saying um, Shalkiet, which is, again, I should admit, uh, that it's the 2014 slogan created by Kazakh feminists, Janara uh, Serkibayeva and Guzeta um, Serjan. The down with the old man is actually like, go old man, go away. Um, people were, you know, they believe in their solidarity. They and, and the second thing is that they saw that the protest can be heard and that it can change the, the situation deeply and structurally because the president now openly talks about the oligarchs something that wasn't done as openly before. A lot of people, I think, were shocked after yesterday's presidential speech because it was so much, um, you know, describing these hidden transcripts that were in the society, but nobody really managed to talk about them as openly as, as Tokayev did yesterday. So I think that's not going to go away. And another thing um, that there are people still in the society who will be, despite of all the harassment that is about to come and repression, that, that is obviously, I, I mean, I'm hoping that it's not going to happen to the extent, uh, because this is not a police state and this cannot be a police state unless there's deeper structural violence happening on the ground. But Kazakhstan right. is not the typical police state. So there will be voices yeah. of activists coming out saying we want political reform. So I'm hopeful, yeah. actually. Absolutely. I, I, and that's all we, I, I hope that with all this tragedy that came out of, that has come out of these protests that there is some hope and that you all that the both of you feel it so thank you the both of you for taking time out of your very, very busy schedules to talk about this subject and because it's so dear to you both uh, personally and and that you take care of yourselves in the process thank you thank you All right, so now it's time to say thank you. 
Go to your favorite podcast apps and give me a five-star rating, especially on iTunes. The ratings definitely help magnify uh, my podcast. And for those who give me five stars, that's really excellent. It, It really helps a lot. So please do that. Go on your favorite podcast apps, especially iTunes. And you can also tune in to my twice a week Twitter spaces show, also named Black Diplomats, where I talk about all things foreign policy. There's no set schedule. You'll just have to follow me at Russian underscore star, and that star with two R's, to learn when I'll be broadcasting a space. And space is a new platform that is offered by Twitter. It's very similar to Clubhouse, where you can hear me engaging other Twitter folks about foreign policy issues of the week and also evergreen stuff. Black Diplomats podcast comes to you with support from the Outrider Foundation, as well as my devoted Patreon supporters. And production of Black Diplomats comes thanks to Mike Hall, my brother from another mother. Thanks for listening and see you all next week.